Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. It's like we get to the questions, and my mom's friend Diane turns to my mom and is like, do you care for the moths as much as I do? In this kind of fake old voice. And my mom, my mom playing call, who is this crow. He's like, he's, he's this like cool, like crow old, you know, like my mom is like, I used to care for the, I used to care for the moths, but no longer. I've grown sick of them. You know, it's like, Whoa, Hey mom, where did that come from? My name is Jeremy Gage and welcome to the draw your dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you're in the intro, but... As always, today is not about me. It's about who I brought to you. And today I have brought to you an amazing individual. Amazing. You have probably met this person in the Twitters, on the blogs, on medium.com. Beautiful creative writer, lead designer behind Sleepaway, and the recently Kickstarter smashing GMless hit Wander Home. I would like to welcome to the show Jay. Dragon! <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's really good to be on this show. I love your your wrestler intro. It makes me I feel like who's that in the corner? Oh my god, it's 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 Jason Morningstar with a with a, with a steel chair. Oh my god, Jeff Stormer is having a riot right now. If he's oh, still listening to the show, hi Jeff. Hi Jeff. <laughs> Please still listen to my show. Thank you so much for being here today, Jay. It's it, I. You've been on the periphery for so long that I'm happy that it's finally happening. I am so bad at just reaching out to people to be on podcasts. I always, I, I love being on podcasts. It's like, I, I'm, it's like the main way of like, cause I'm really bad at actual plays. I'm really bad at like mm-hmm. game, playing games with people. So podcasts is always my chance to socialize. And I'm just a clown who forgets to reach out to people. So I'm really excited to be here and finally get to chat with you through all oh, these yeah. years, <laughs> all these yeah. year and a half. <laughs> Two oh my years God. That has been that. Well, yeah. Oh my God. Anyways, 
Mm-hmm. Jay, just in case someone's listening and doesn't know who you are, would you just give a brief introduction of how you present yourself to the internet and anything you want people to know? Additionally, with like how to get in touch with you or find your mm-hmm. stuff, I want you to make dollars as soon as possible. For sure, me too. Hi, I'm Jay Dragon. I don't use pronouns, but if I must, they will do. I am a game designer. I'm a queer disabled game designer. I write generally GM-less games about liminality, community, and the magic of the mundane. And I am the I am the founder of I'm the co-founder of Post Creek Games, which is a little publishing company in upstate New York that puts out cool, queer, fun games. You can check me out on Twitter. I'm I'm the only Jay Dragon there. I promise. You can find me on, you can find, you know, Possum Creek on Instagram, on Twitter, you know, you can check out our website, possumcreekgames.com, and you can support our Patreon, patreon.com slash Possum Creek. And our Patreon is connected to our Discord, where I do a lot of design work, I hang out with a lot of folks, I give advice, all that stuff. So highly encourage you to join the Patreon, highly encourage you to come hang out with me on Discord, and, you know, check out my Twitter and appreciate my funny jokes. And powerful jokes indeed additionally jay as an icebreaker for all the listeners would you just also sort of give your rpg history in terms of like what was the first game that got you into Mm -hmm. the discipline Mm -hmm. slash hobby and then what was also sort of the first spark that got you to start designing so i got into role-playing games when i was 12 when i started larping where my summer camp was a LARP summer camp, and I, I learned how to LARP. My first game, I remember Brennan Lee Mulligan holding me while I cry in this like palace made of light. Very good, cool LARP stuff. I owe a lot to the Wayfinder experience. Kind of that was kind of my place of play for many, many years throughout high school. Until I was like 18 years old, I decided to try Dungeons and Dragons with a friend. And I was like, that's neat. I want to play Monster Hearts. I learned about Monster Hearts. I played that. I got deeply enamored with Avery Alder's work with PBTA. I was, you know, a a fan for a while. And then in 2018, I wrote a 200 word RPG. And then someone on Reddit told me that it wasn't a real game. And that spite has motivated me ever since. And in 2019, I released Sleepaway on Kickstarter, which was my first game that was kind of published instead of just like, you know, put put up on the internet. And Sleepaway did very well by my standards at the time. Then after that, I was involved with some other Kickstarters, finally did Wander Home in 2020. And Wander Home was uh, record-breaking, which is really unanticipated. It made the most, it's, it's been the most successful GM-less RPG on Kickstarter, I believe. And that was really, that was really huge and unexpected. And I've worked full-time publishing games, playing games, reading games, hanging out with folks. So that's how I kind of got involved in all this. Jay, it, it it's amazing, truly. I feel like I'm missing so much of... Uh, game design theory that I'm not involved with LARPs. I've never LARPed in my... Well, that's not true. When I was 10, 11, mm-hmm. me and my brothers, I had I had four, four brothers, three younger, mm-hmm. one older, and when Pokemon first came out, we would often... Mm-hmm. It's technically a LARP. Two of us would be the Pokemon, two of us would be the trainers, and we would just battle, yelling words at each other and making animal noises you know what does I, a flamethrower sound like <laughs> i think that i think that larp and the, the reason i love wayfinders LARP, it's very it's a very particular form of larp that taught me a lot about games that i don't think other people know but i think the very crucial thing about games that I've, I've written about this on me i wrote an article about a dozen fragments on playground theory where uh, i talk about the idea of rpgs the kind of the, the primordial rpg kind of the thing that 
our work is most directly tied to is not war games. It's not even Yoko Ono as much as I love her. Mm-hmm. Our work is very fundamentally tied to playground games and yeah. the ability to like read this world and enact it. Right. Cause like, like if you think about it, like, you know, like, like not to kind of get into high theory very quick, but like, <laughs> if, if you look at like, okay, well with Pokemon, right. You, you, you know, let's say for example, I'm going to, I'm going to take it out of Pokemon. Cause I think Pokemon is a good example, but it doesn't have like a clear book. So let's say for example, like, uh, warrior cats is kind of my go-to where it's like a kid reads warrior cats and in the warrior series it presents rules on like what it means to be a cat it gives you kind of verbs that cats do it gives you the structure of being a cat it gives you this world it tells you how to move through it and then a kid reads warrior cats and goes out into the world and enacts that and plays that out with other kids who have also read that and also understand those rules and what makes that is just an RPG. I've just described an RPG, right? Like, <laughs> there is no difference between what I just described and like the process of reading and playing any, mm-hmm. any game we write. And I think Pokemon's the same way, where it's like Pokemon tells you the rules of how to LARP it, it tells you the rules of how to play. You, you engage with the Pokemon, you internalize these systems, not system in an RPG sense, but system in a societal sense, where it teaches you these systems of how these fictional things engage with each other. And, you know, how these kind of how these how these kind of fictional things feed into each other. And then you play that you you act it out and you you perform it. And that's 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 a LARP. That's a game. And that's the kind of work we do. It's the same work. It's not like similar work. It's identical. Yeah. And it's so fascinating that you talk about that, too, because, first of all, everyone listening, get ready for a jam packed episode for hitting high theory from uh, minute eight of this. But. It's so interesting that you that you talk about that. I've read that article about the the dozen different fragments, and I've read that playground uh, article you you wrote up a while back. And I I think it makes it so much. I think it what it does is it sort of gives a permission that like my game just needs a way to translate operating the fantastical in a mundane space. Mundane being like the real world with dice or cards or token exchange. Right. And it's like, when you hear, when I hear something like that, I'm like, Whoa, I just need to be able to tell the person how to enact. Right. As the, I think is the best word that you use, just how to enact what they want to do or try to like, and they'll change it, right? That's what hacking and homebrewing yeah. ends up being. It's like, oh, I don't feel like I'm quite getting the magic I want here. Let me see if I can just twist this thing a little bit and and turn the dial to let me operate my pizza cat ninja lark, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, <laughs> deep, yeah. deep cut. But it, I think it's so beautiful to hear something like that. And I think a, a lot of designers could benefit from yeah. just like letting go. Right. Just letting go of like the academia of, Mm -hmm. of design. So I think there's a lot of different approaches to design. And the one that I frequently take is something that I, I kind of, I need to find a good word for it because lyrical design is sort of true, but not really accurate Mm -hmm. at this point. I'm kind of like almost interested in like literary design Mm -hmm. or like, I don't know, like, I don't know, prosaic design. But what I'm interested in is I don't, write games i don't you can write a game that is rules for a system and when you follow the rules of the system you are playing the game right when you think of many story games you think of like 
This game tells you these rules and you follow them and you get a game from the other side. It's very board game-ish. Whereas for me, that is not at all my intention. My intention is I'm going to tell you about this dream I have. And I'm going to tell you both kind of the, the, the aesthetic components and the literary, you know, so like I'm going to describe for you the world and engage you in the world. And I'm going to give you mechanical like footholds in the world so that you have some kind of mechanical framework. that's almost like a structural skeleton for embodying this that I, I like in much the same way that warrior cats kind of gives you these rules for how like cats move through the clan, right. Or like, Pokemon gives you rules for, like, how types engage with each other, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you understand that a fire type is weak to a water type. And that is a rule, right? That's a a rule for a game. It's a lot like how, you know, like, it's kind of like everything else. And it means that when you play Pokemon, when you play kind of, when you LARP out Pokemon, you, you don't have to, like, you don't have to follow the rules for hit points, when you understand the system of, oh, fire types are weak to water types. Mm-hmm. And if a, if a water type does a big water attack, a tsunami against a fire type, the fire type is, is, is killed by that, you know, or knocked out by that, right? Like you understand that conceptual as a rule system and you are engaging with the rules of the game without nec- like following every single instruction perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that's much more of what game design is, is that I'm not trying to tell you how to play. I'm trying to build this structural skeleton that you can play with. Mm -hmm. I'm basically building a toy for you. Or like another example I frequently use that I came up a lot with the playground theory article is there's, you can, you can design tag or hide and seek, right? Like you could design one of those games and I'm not really a tag designer, right? I don't really make the rules for tag. Mm -hmm. I make like, I make monkey bars and like weird Mm. playground equipment and when you have the weird playground equipment, it makes tag way more fun, right? It makes hide and seek way more fun. It, it makes it more interesting to play tag than you would in an empty field. Mm-hmm. So that's the work I'm doing is that ultimately I am giving you a space that is, is to me more rewarding than just playing in an empty field. But also I'm not kind of, I don't have a vision for how you'll engage with it beyond giving components that seem like they'll be fun to engage with, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. This may not be the word you use, but like for, as I'm processing this, it feels like a lot of like, like arena design, like to Mm -hmm. layer one thing into another, to layer rules into a space sort of thing is like, yeah. Cause, cause you brought up the monkey bars. I'm like, I think about parkour tag, right? Like the, the fucking cool, semi-olympic sport that's in existence and it's just tag taken to another like game design level right you're just adding a lot of obstacles and things to hide behind jump over Mm -hmm. get under impede and that for me is very much the design goal right where it's like i i might tell you you know oh hey here's an obstacle course for playing parkour tag maybe that's what i tell you maybe i even give you the rules for parkour tags you don't know them Mm -hmm. that's all fine for me that's all fun for me and i give you i build this space i give you the rules for you know how it's fun to engage but i think there's a difference right between building this space and telling you how i like to engage with it Mm -hmm. versus like telling you you know okay this is what you must do yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You want to play a good game of like almost like I guess a little bit of like I don't want to give the meta away almost. <laughs> I don't want to tell you the way to play parkour deck. I want to just give you this environment and give you this these kind of conditions on how to move through it. Yeah. And see and watch and you you get have fun. And I think that 
that is a thing that I do say a lot. And um, it bothers a lot of people sometimes in different ways. And what's interesting to me is that it bothers a lot of story game folks, right? Because I, I, I kind of have a very, I disagree with mm-hmm. a lot of story gamers about the function of games, right? Like mm-hmm. the moment you start writing rules that look like they're out of a board game, you've lost me. But I also disagree with the OSR a lot because the OSR loves to kind of invoke the dreaded phrase, you know, a system doesn't matter, which I think is pedantry at best. And I tend to, you know, I, I don't bicker about it on Twitter because that kind of conversation is useless on Twitter, but it is something I, I dwell on a lot where it's like, there's this idea, right, that like, oh, I'm saying that you're not writing board game rules. Therefore, the next step, or the, the kind of the opposite end of that is that, oh, well, you shouldn't be designing a game at all, you weirdo. You should just be making a box full of parts and people open up the box and they find weird stuff inside and they toss it around. I'm like, no, well, I disagree with that also. I'm trying to make things that are that are fun to play that you want to put on the table and have them feel relevant and be fun to play with because they're like they're, it's it's it, the system matters because it's the thing sitting on the table right like it, it it it's not it's a thing that you want you want to have matter it's not a thing that I'm forcing you to have matter yeah it almost needs like a stu- like you can't you can't just give like a box of cool things without like a way to start engaging with them right like yeah. you could you could you could have like someone put a box full of cool things on a table and say nothing actually <laughs> you can say nothing like just go to town but mm-hmm. i think it you know i'm a big believer in that limitations breed creativity right so like that mm-hmm. old phrasing and so yes. when you say like hey here's one option of how mm-hmm. you engage with this origami paper mm-hmm. or whatever right yeah. you could make this box but then you're like yeah okay i made a box but like how do i make a bird right or can i yes. make something mechanical or can i make can i combine pieces of paper do i have to use a single piece of paper yeah. right and like those starts those things like once you understand the fundamentals of mm-hmm. folding paper and the materials have been given to you then that's where the exploratory journey happens of mm-hmm. like the what ifs mm-hmm. right yeah well i think what's what i think is always really cool so i have this really big fascination with games that what do you call it? like Games contain more than you anticipate. So, like, emergent design is a really mm-hmm. big thing for me. I really love emergent properties when you've Absolutely. got a game and you think it's one thing and then you play it and you engage with it and you realize there's a lot more to it, that stuff emerges from it. Mm-hmm. The classic example I always use from when I was a kid would be, like, so I'm playing a LARP, right? Like, we're in the woods. We're, I'm running around for nine hours. I'm fighting monsters. I'm part <laughs> of my team of heroes, you know, we defeat the the giant god of darkness. We save the world. We feel super successful. And then we're hanging out with everyone else. You know, it's late at night. It's story circle. Everyone's telling stories about their game. And a bunch of folks are talking about how much fun they had being werewolves looking for the fountain of life and like all that and the crazy adventure they had and how they all turn into birds at the end. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't know about any of that. I maybe <laughs> ran into a couple of the, you like on a path going the opposite way. But it turns out this game was way bigger than I thought it was that actually what was super satisfying for me was actually only a portion of all of the play that occurred and realizing oh, this world is so much bigger and deeper and full of life than I anticipated is a quality I really want to cultivate with my games. I don't want my mm-hmm. games to feel like these static, closed uh, systems. Like, I adore Fiasco. I have fun playing Fiasco. I can't write Fiasco mm-hmm. because Fiasco is a very closed system game. It really it doesn't, it, it has some emergent mechanical properties, but like the game itself feels very like, oh, you know, you put into it exactly what you expect to get out of it. Or, like, when you put something in, you get out what you expect. Whereas what I want from a game is I want a game where 
you start putting stuff in and it starts connecting together and you start to realize like, Oh, whoa, wait, I think I remember like you sort of realizing how deep the rabbit hole goes. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I want that feeling from a game. And that's kind of what I try to cultivate in, in the games I write. Yeah. Jay, uh, shining segue. Let's talk about that. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about, let's talk about wander home. <laughs> let's talk about wander. First of all, I usually have, it, you do the introduction of the game and kind of like tell people what's about just in case they've been sleeping under a rock. But just as an opening, I love it. Like I don't have a stronger way to display what I think of Wander Home. I read the whole kit and caboodle and it, it is just oozing with things that I would love to get into. But would you, for the folks at home, give a brief introduction of what Wander Home is and sort of how players engage with it? Yeah. So Wander Home is a, a pastoral fantasy RPG about a group of traveling animal folk as they journey through the world of Haith. As the seasons change, and so do they. It is a game that has no dice, no masters. It is very peaceful and rolling, where the decisions you make are very freeform. It's very close to freeform play, and it is very much about these kind of characters you sculpt full of internal conflict as they navigate this boundless fascinating world that kind of almost procedurally generates from the book and over the course of many sessions as you go through many seasons uh, your characters grow in new ways until eventually they they retire and you must make a new character mm-hmm. uh, and that's wander home <laughs> and there's no violence also that's a big one that people love to talk about there's no violence in wander home mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of i've seen some i've seen some tweets about that as well and i actually seen mm-hmm. i had seen some discourse maybe two or three weeks ago about like violence in games which is very fascinating many terms muted i i i like (laughs) i learned about this stuff so secondhand where i like i'll find out like oh people were discoursing about this and i'll be like really yeah that calm down and that's only when I just pop in. I don't have anything muted, but I'm not on Twitter that often, which is yeah. poor for my marketing strategy. But, you know, it is what great it is. for your mental health. But even though there's no violence in the game and you talked about that as a very upwarming, uplifting and, and warm game, there is mm-hmm. you you mentioned a bit in there that you can also like have versions of this where you're exploring trauma and things like that as well, like dealing with yeah. some, some traumatic issues as well, which I think Wander is very... Home's, Wander Home's a surprisingly very melancholy game. It doesn't yeah. look that way at first glance, but I actually had one reviewer talk about how they didn't like it because it was too melancholy. It was too it was too heavy. That They wanted yeah. something cute and fluffy, and Wander Home wasn't cute and fluffy. It was, it was poignant, because what it does, right, is that the, in the pick lists... You know, like all of the options, a lot of the options are very tinged with melancholy. A lot of the characters you make are kind of rubbing up against these heavier topics. Yeah. Um, a frequent one. So, for example, I'm playing a great game of Wander Home right now with Gion and Brennan. We're doing like Jealous. this little journey through through the Haith. And our characters are seeking political asylum, navigating through a network of rebels like mm-hmm. underneath the shadow of the king of the floating mountain mm-hmm. and like trying to get through these series of border posts without getting detected. And like, that's a thing most people don't associate with wander home, but it's like, yeah, that's what our game is about. We are narratively not focusing on the heavy bits. Like we're not fighting guards, right? Like we're focusing on the daily lives of these rebels who are helping us. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of focusing on like, what is it like to navigate this world? And like, make friends with people in this like difficult political climate. But Wander Home is space for that too. Wander Home is a game without um, violence, but it's not a game without 
like emotional way. It's not a game without conflict. It's it's not a game without darkness or heaviness or pain as much as people kind of assume otherwise, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and that's, you know, just to kick back to like the emergent design stuff is like, even as I read it, like the, what is the, the, no, it's not the exile. What is that first playbook? The caretaker? The care, the caretaker. Yeah. Just those mm-hmm. like dark, those kind of like, spirits that you carry around with you is is mm-hmm. also something to, like talk about grieving and death and like yeah. kind of rubs up against those elements and mm-hmm. you know maybe people who've been like being forgotten and and things of that nature as well and also it has mm-hmm. a little bit of tinge of like old god stuff right because i've read stories about like how gods are fake or what is that anime nico nico nomi it's about like a, a cat no a uh, money god that oh has, i know what you mean yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah 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 i don't remember uh, what it's called but yeah yeah nikogami maybe yeah i think i think that's very close if not the actual thing but yeah mm-hmm. it's you know it also has those elements of like rediscovering lore that's been forgotten right it has this memory quality to it so like yeah you could have that like just like journeying along heath and discovering things but you could all there's these like very amazing introspective elements to all the playbooks like my favorite is the firelight mm-hmm. for sure like if i was going to play my first wander home game i would play a firelight character yeah yeah absolutely and i think also like i i really love one one of my friends described it as they wrote this they wrote this great little zine about baseball and wander home it's very funny but in it they talk about the the traumatic traits Mm-hmm. And I think they do a really beautiful observation, which is that at first glance, the double dagger that it signifies that a, a trait of an NPC is traumatic, right? And like the intention of that, as the text says, is that it gives you space to avoid those traits, right? Like if you don't want to incorporate that into your game, you can avoid it. But what it actually does is it draws your attention to it. And you realize as you flip through the book that the book is covered in almost these little scars, mm-hmm. these little double dagger scars, where like there has been hurt and you can see that hurt kind of on every single page. It kind of traces its way. And I thought that was very beautiful way of describing it. Yeah. That really stuck. And I was like, damn, that's a good, like that. I really feel seen with that observation throughout the book. There's references right to the rebellion, to the King of the floating mountain, Mm -hmm. the wars of old, the heaven blade, the slobbering God. And it's like, this is not a world without violence, right? This is not a world where there has never been violence. Another very lovely compliment I received. I, all of my best compliments get saved in my brain forever. Brennan described it very beautifully. He used this metaphor where he talked about how in, in, in things like wind in the willows, right. Or in frog and toad, it's the pastoral is eternal, right? Like frog and toad are always on their bike, right? Like they're never going anywhere. Nothing's going to happen to them. They're always happy. there. wind in the willows. The, the world that they exist in is idyllic and eternal in, in wander home. And in a lot of my writing that is sort of on the more gentler pastoral side, cause that's not, I don't just write cute stuff. I write other stuff too. But in my writing that is kind of on the more pastoral, soft slice of life side, the the the, the Halcyon is not eternal, right? The Wander Home, the Haith is not a place that exists forever. It's it's a place that has been that people have died to make possible. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of fragile, right? That it, it maybe it's not eternal. Maybe there is this opportunity, right? That maybe it's not gonna last forever and so you gotta enjoy it while you can and so that's and that's a perspective on the pastoral that i think many people when they when they when they talk about wander home as like oh well you know wander home doesn't you know dwell you know it it covers up these kind of heavy social traumas it's like no it doesn't it absolutely doesn't Mm -hmm. wander home 
is a world with with a lot of heavy social traumas. It is just a world that's better than this one. It's a world where there's no violence anymore. It's a world where healing, the concept of healing is possible and can be engaged with mm-hmm. on a mature level. Where we talk about when we talk about transformative justice and restorative justice now in our modern day, we're kind of shooting smoke a little bit because we can't escape the carceral. We can't escape white supremacy and we can't escape capitalism. But Wander Home is a world that has managed to escape that. And so it's very meaningful, actually, to be able to envision that world and, and figure out how to try and escape and how to heal. I think, and it's exa- again, it kicks back to like, here are the things on the table as you play, engage with them as you will, right? Because I think you can really give a lot of different paint jobs to okay. your. Uh, your narrative, your fiction, your engagement, your tone, right? The style of your play. There's a yeah. lot of different ways to like slice it up. And uh, you could do something very like, you can do individual character arcs, right? There's mm-hmm. a very cool, like, there's a potentially like a really cool solo experience you can do with this. Mm-hmm. I don't, I think the book, does the book mention a solo experience yes. option? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, and there's I, been a lot of people who have done solo. I was like, am I making that up? Yeah, GM-less, yeah. a, a GM'd option, uh, yeah. solo play. Like, it has a lot of different modes of engagement, like, mechanically yeah. as well as narratively, which is very beautiful. So, to to sort of, like, da- to because it's partially the, a design show, what was, like the opening idea for Wander Home. Like, why create this game in the first place? Wander Home started... (laughs) Wander Home was... I started writing Wander Home the first week of quarantine. Mm -hmm. Like, I literally found my old documents. It was like, that was when it started. And it started from a a couple of factors, which is that I was um, very sad, as you do during quarantine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was sitting in my backyard. My backyard connects to a river, a full-blown river. I call it a creek, but it's a river. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting by that, and I was looking at the water, and I was thinking about how the world looks different from the water looking at the land. And I was thinking about that particular emotional experience of what is it like? What what is the world that exists when you are looking at it from the water? And I know that's a little high concept. I don't know. I was really sad. I was tired. It kind of was this, like... That's kind of how it just kicked, clicked together where it was like this interest and like, what if there was a world that looked the way the world does when you're at, when you're in the water? And then from there, the first thing I did was I, I, I figured out, I I kind of was, I was briefly entertaining this thought of like integrating PBTA, but what happened, and I kind of started sketching things out using PBTA, but the thing that I ended up doing was I wrote down what are I was like, okay, well, success and failure. What do I want failure to look like? What are the bounds of failure? What are the bounds of success? Mm -hmm. What is the greatest success and the greatest failure you can achieve? And I realized that my answer was very limited, that I wasn't interested in. Actually, at this point, it was post-apocalyptic. It was a post-apocalyptic game. But I I realized I wasn't interested in great success or failure at all. And I realized that the, the range of, of victory when you approach something, I realized was very small. And I was like, okay, I'll write moves based around that. And I'll make the game very much about like this play that's very orthogonal to this concept of victory and failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I wrote a playbook, pick lists. It all started emerging, coming together and crashing mm-hmm. together until it became one of those. 
<laughs> inevitable design truly <laughs> <laughs> well, what happens it really was it was like well, you know i wrote like a playbook and then i wrote another playbook and i was like these playbooks are pretty cool i feel like i'm onto something mm-hmm. and i really but i also need to make sure that the world they're in kind of gets credit so i need to make some kind of rules for generating the world they're in right so, okay, so i need to write natures or i need to i guess oh god how many natures do i need to write well like let's do a d66 table Right. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, all right, well, I also want to make sure NPCs get this kind of love. Let's make, let's figure out how, you know, what, what they need. Oh, God, they need a lot too. It's the next thing you know, you know, you kind of just, it's like, oh, well, I got I got to write this bit also. And I just kept writing until finally I, I, I hit a point where it was like, I don't want to write anymore. <laughs> I just have nothing left to say. I've done my bit for now. This Aww. is like, I could keep going forever if I wanted, right? Like, I keep fleshing out things. Mm-hmm. I could add extra months, extra natures, extra traits, extra playbooks. Like, Wander Home kind of, even reading Wander Home, right? Like it's a big book, right? It's got a yeah. lot, of, but there's also this feeling of like, well, this isn't all the stuff there could be. There could be more. It doesn't, it's not self-contained. It keeps, it, it feels like it can keep going. And so that was really how the design came out. It kind of roll, rolled out of me, I guess. <laughs> my, one of my co-writers, M, a Nightling Bug on Twitter, teases me a lot because we were working on our big project, Yazeba's Bed and Breakfast. And I, we took a weekend off, right? Where it was like, M was like, I'm too tired. I can't work this weekend. It was at the start of quarantine. M was really depressed. M was like, I can't work. And mm-hmm. I was like, that's fine. That's fine. Of course that's fine. And I wrote Wander Home. <laughs> 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 and M-, M comes back after like a long weekend and it's like, you've written like 5,000, 6,000 words of playbooks. And I'm like, yeah, I just started this new thing. Uh, it would be fun. I'm all the way in. It's whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a vacation for my other project. And then it kept <laughs> growing and growing. And, you know, it's, it's tentacled maw kept ensorceling more things until I was like, all right, well, this is a whole fucking game. I guess I got to kickstart this. Yeah, whatever. I guess. <laughs> I guess. I guess. The game is, is truly magnificent and honestly it's like this would definitely this goes into like my my gm toolkit of like games i would offer to new role players because Mm -hmm. i think its onboarding system is very cool because i like the way that you inserted not safe like safety language in -hmm. the beginning of the book which i really like though sort of like the conversational patterns of like how do we make sure that we're all on the same page for mm-hmm. different stuff, right? Like the yeah. hold on and the no and walking mm-hmm. away and the what do yeah. you think, right? The the yeah. journeying tools, if you will. I think those are super beautiful. It's yeah. not like you don't need dice to play this, right? You could play this mm-hmm. with pennies if you wanted to with like the light yeah. token system. And it's all just very conversational and open, which could have a potential for decision paralysis. But at the same time, you offer a lot of promptings and choices that are just sort of like uh, default options, right? I don't think anywhere in the book it says like you have to operate by this playbook standards truly, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. if you need something to lean on, here's some dances you know for the for the dancer, right? Or you know, yeah. what how do you interact with your lightning bug uh front friend, yes, right? So absolutely. And I've actually played Wander Home with a lot of new folks. I've played it my most exciting game with Wander Home I think I've ever done was with my mom where my mom and her friends we all got together uh in in this on this porch in the middle of this field full of wildflowers my my mom's friend's house has this beautiful porch and we all we all got together and we played wander home and i taught them how to play wander home and 
it was, you know, every single one of them, they were all, you know, 60 years old. None of them had ever played an RPG before. None of them had ever thought of playing an RPG before. They didn't even know, right? Like, they, like I, I need you to understand, this is, like, no context, no understanding, <laughs> no framework to even start with this. Halfway through character creation, they start doing voices. Oh, my God. Right? Like, half, like, like, they're literally, like, it's like we get to the questions, and my mom's friend Diane turns to my mom and is like, do you care for the moths as much as I do? In this kind of fake <laughs> old voice. And my mom, my mom playing Ka, who is this crow, he's like, he's, he's this like cool, like crow old, you know, like my mom is like, I used to care for the, I used to care for the moths, but no longer. I've grown sick of them. You know, it's like, whoa, hey, mom, where did that come from? Like, yeah, hell yeah, mom, play a crow, a crow named Ka, who's like the adoptive dad of the ragamuffin. Like, and it just all came together very well. And they, like, the thing about it, right, is because it's like, there's not really a wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. I I do think if you're teaching new folks, being a guide is really valuable. Like you don't want to just toss them in without a guide, but being like, that's the whole point of the guide, right? Is when you're teaching new people, it's super easy to onboard them and it's super Mm -hmm. easy to just start playing with them because there's not a wrong thing they can do. Mm -hmm. They can look at their sheet and be like, Hey, I'm going to do this. I can always do this. I'm going to choose something I can always do and then do it. And it's great. It feels great. It feels really good to play it with new people in a way that you really don't, I, it's really rare to see with other games. It's really hard to find games where when you play it with a group of people who don't play games, they really, they're, they're really caught up in it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It's, it's just, it's truly, eh. the other thing that helps too is I don't know if you had the book at the time for, for that instance, but that was the first time I played with the book. That I was, oh, was, her, cool. was a couple weeks ago. And I actually, it's the first time I got to use the book. Amazing. Part of the, part of the joy of it. Part of the additional onboarding is like the dripping flavor of like just soaked in flavor for this game. It's absolutely wet with flavor. <laughs> the book is an incredible way to get people on board, right? Like, like literally like, it's so rare to have an object where it's like, Hey, do you want to play this? And you <laughs> have them wander home. And it's like, it's like you're handing them. So like, it shines in the right light. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, oh. like it, like it, it, it's really the art. Like I've had people talk shit about art in games. I've had people dismiss it as a marketing tactic. I've had people be very snide about it. I think art is incredibly invaluable. I, yep. I prioritize art above basically anything because if the function of a game right is to invite someone into this shared dream art is invaluable it is the most effective and efficient way of communicating the themes and tone and emotional state of the game and it does Mm. that incredibly well and it like the art for wander home is really effective at grabbing you and pulling you close and being like hey this is what the world is like Mm -hmm. and i could not do that with just the text Right, Wander Home in its manuscript form is an interesting read, but it, it's not the same as Wander Home with the art, you know, that, that pulls you and yanks you around. It's got this child storybook energy. It's also mm-hmm. got like this vignette, like almost like draw in 
uh, periscope feel on a lot of the art pieces. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. got this lots of snapshot, like this could be you sort of thing going yes. on. It was it's, really important. It's to us so that good. We, we we got so many different artists because a really important thing to us was that we want we wanted so many different perspectives. We wanted so many different viewpoints on this world. And like for example, like everyone kind of brought something different, right? Like like ranging from like. Lauren L.H. bringing Northern Renaissance and Bruegel references in, which I, I could literally, you know, go on for a bit about, about the art history references of Wanderhome. But, like, there's references to Northern Renaissance art. There's references to turn-of-the-century American folk art. There's references to traditional Malaysian, I believe Malaysian, either Malaysian or Indonesian, uh, tapestries. There's references Ooh. to, oh, God, like, stained glass windows. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, Periscope stuff and, like, just every single different like you know references to like 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 spanish revolutionary art like Mex- mexican you know revolutionary art there's a reference mm-hmm. to that and they're like everything kind of like it, it's it's all there's a lot of of thematic visual language throughout the whole book uh that's from a huge variety of different sources so like even if you don't recognize all of the the references immediately the language communicates a lot of the themes like Nadir Noor's piece Across the Hills, which is the two-page spread at the start of the nature section, is, is so if you look at it, it's using a technique that's really common in traditional Malaysian tapestry work and common throughout Southeast Asia of you've got these hills and you have this caravan of people moving through the hills. And they're depicted moving through the hills by the same caravan in multiple places over the course of the painting. Like as you go from right as you go from right to left, you mm-hmm. see the figures as they move through the hills again, repeated again and again. And that's a really common technique used by, used to conflate space and time and to communicate the movement of time over space. And then if you look at the banner, the, 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 the edging, the, the sort of the faux, you know, gold edging also mm-hmm. depicts the changing of the seasons. And so it's using another tool to communicate the movement of time. And we asked him here to make a piece that's about, the movement of, of, of moving through space over time. And that's really using kind of this traditional visual language to articulate the themes of the game in relationship to movement and travel and exploration in a way that is more effective than any words I could write. Like the picture does the work. Yep. Yeah. And does so without you even needing to think about it. You don't have to stare deeply at it to like, you know, like the stuff I say doesn't have to be something you consciously register for it to impact your read. Mm-hmm. I think on this show, we've often had both ends of the spectrum of like, you don't need great art to create a great game. And as you're saying here, great art also helps the onboarding process so powerfully. And I think both of those things are true in different stages, right? I think that for when you're really looking at, I think what's important is to get your first ideas out there as soon as possible to get Mm -hmm. feedback. So you don't need the art for the first ideas, but like as my, sort of intuitions or taste or values start to shift as I talk with different guests. Like when I read a book like Wander Home or I, I always imagine like when I'm reading a new game, I am the first thing I pass through when I read it is like, what does the context of a person who can't play or who has never played an RPG will look at? Cause I want to want to play with people. Right. And a lot of the people I play with, or no, don't really have experience with their RPGs, like non-internet individuals. And yeah, what, if I show them Wander Home, they're going to know exactly what the fuck they're going to dive into. But if I show them something like 
honestly, if I show them something like D&D, they may have like a vague idea of what they're getting into, right? Because it promotes the story, but the mechanics of the game don't really inspire the same feeling yeah, in terms absolutely. of like being a combat simulator, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think that like, I mean, I think that's really it is like, I think to me, you want your game I, 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 I've been referring to this concept. I've been talking to Jami, Jamila Najati, this concept that I call having teeth, mm-hmm. which is that I really want games to have teeth. I really want a game to, to, to like, like, you know, if I write a game that's like a generic universal system and mm-hmm. you read through it and it doesn't have any teeth or it doesn't really have any art, it doesn't really have anything that, that pulls me in, I'm not really caught up in the fantasy of it. Mm-hmm. But a game that's very specific, right? A game that uses specificity, that uses, you know, eloquent prose, that uses art as one of its many tools, that uses good layout, that uses, like, the variety of tools in order to, to give teeth, right? In order to have teeth, in order to bite me and, and grab me and be like, <laughs> ah, you need to play this now. Ah, you, you're not going to be able to stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, like, <laughs> the, like games have to, like, Under Hollow Hills, to me, is the classic example of a game, even without any art, it has a lot of teeth. Because because mm-hmm. Under Hollow Hills, I don't know if you've looked at it. It's my nope. favorite game in the whole wide world. I love it. I, I I could genuinely spend a thousand years talking about just Under Hollow Hills. But Under Hollow Hills, it's got these it's got these Power by the Apocalypse moves, and they have such powerful teeth. Right, you read one that's like when you change in form from a wolf to a man, or a man to a wolf, or something in between. Roll. Like that grabs you, right? Or like another move that's like when you summon the mousy clans in their thousands and thousands. Oh or like, God. you know, when you shape shift into a bird in order to escape danger. Like these are great. They really, they bite you, right? Like they mm-hmm. make you want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know? like, and, they, and like they don't, it, like, the game doesn't have any art yet. It's going to, I know that I've got, they've got plans for art. It's going to be very beautiful. Uh, but right now the game doesn't have any art. And that's totally fine because it, it still bites you, right? The text still still has teeth. And so you don't need art to have teeth, but your game needs to have teeth. And art is a really effective way uh, to have teeth. And I think that if you don't have art, that's totally fine. You just need other other things in place, other ways to grab people. And that's the important part to me. I think that's a really good, really good pushback in terms of like, my conjecture of like great art also helps in the bit. Cause that's true. I I've definitely read games that don't have like strong art pieces to them, but I'm like, man, I really want to engage with what this thing is like yeah. trying to put on top of me. Right. Like I think one of the games that does that really well for me, well, wander home certainly being one of them, but there was for a time being monster of the week did, did something very similar to that where I sort of want to enact my, supernatural ways about about the game and engage in like the uh, what was i playing the monster i think i was the monster mm-hmm. or what mm-hmm. whatever that playbook is called at the time this is mm-hmm. a while ago but yeah. yeah i i i dig it and i totally i think teeth mm-hmm. is a great way I, I maybe i might use like meat has some meat to sink my teeth into but i use the phrase teeth i feel like for me it's something i think i use it because I started using it to talk about pick lists and there's something mm-hmm. very apt about the idea of a list. Like each, each item in the list looks kind of like a tooth. And so oh. for me, it was like, is the pick list like grabbing me, you know, like is, is the pick list like sinking, it's sinking its teeth into me as an entirety. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, that's where the visual came concept. from for me, but I've been using it more and it's disconnected from the visual. I need better words for it, but mm. I'll, presumably I'll find a better language for it. <laughs> it Cause I feel like it is, it is, it is a quality where it's like, 
I mean, I think the, the advice I always give you when someone comes to me and they're like, can I write a game without this? And whatever this is, is like the thing that they think is really important in games, right? Like maybe that is art or maybe that mm-hmm. is like, can I write a game without characters? Can I write a game without a GM? I guess, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what I always say is like, okay, well, what is that doing? If when you remove it, what, what was it doing, right? Like if you write a game without art, what was the art doing? And are you ready to fill those spots, right? Are you ready mm. to step up for what the art was responsible for? Mm. And also, I mean, I think also crucially, like I'm saying all of this from the perspective of like, I'm trying to get my games kickstarted. I'm trying to get my games published and in bookstores. Mm-hmm. If that's not your objective, if you're not at the stage where you're trying to get your games kickstarted in bookstores, you're trying to release them on itch. You're trying to like, catch the eye of other designers you're trying to you know generate conversation around them you're just making stuff because you want to or like to spread your patreon then we're having a very different conversation right because maybe there are like there are there are many other ways to sink your teeth in and the 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 vitalness of art for me is its speed Mm -hmm. that it it it, it catches you very fast and it Mm -hmm. communicates a lot to you without needing you for you to pull yourself in like art Art grabs you. You know what I mean? Good art grabs you. Mm-hmm. Um, good words, when you get closer to them, they pull you in. Mm-hmm. If I don't want to read a paragraph, right? If I skim a paragraph, if I don't want to read it, I, no, it doesn't matter how good the prose is. Nothing's mm-hmm. going to get me to read it. Whereas art, like you look at it and you look at it. But also the trade-off of art is it's expensive, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah. that is okay. That is, a, that is a totally valid reason to not include art is yeah. that it is expensive. And if it is expensive, you sh- you shouldn't break your budget to get art if you can't figure out a way to, to get art cheap. There are ways to get art cheap. But if you if you don't have access to those, don't. There are mm-hmm. other ways. There are other paths to having your game have a lot of teeth. You just need to be aware of the fact of like this is my limitation. Is that I and like there are always going to be limitations when you make stuff. Limit and limitations breed creativity as mm-hmm. you said. So mm-hmm. like even if you don't have art, you're gonna you gotta you figure something else out, but you can figure something else out, you know? Yeah. And you can always art later. You can always art later. Second editions is a great time to have art. People love being told, oh, this game used to be on itch and it had no art, and now now we're trying to kickstart it and give it lots of good art. People yeah. love doing that. That makes people feel really cool. I'm interested. You said this sort of this idea sort of like rolled out of you, but were there any pieces of like difficult design, like challenging design for you when it came to Wander Home? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com. And remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Me think. Yeah, take your time. Beauty of podcasts, I can edit any silence out. So true. I think the hardest challenge of Wander Home was making sure that when people pick it up, they feel like they can go into it well. There was a lot of, you know, it's a weird game. And specifically, I think there's kind of a common axiom in story games where of of the reverse bell curve of accessibility, Mm -hmm. where it's very easy to make story games that are accessible to people who've never played a game before. And it's easy to make games that are very accessible to people who've played lots of games. It's easy to make a game that can do that for both groups, Mm -hmm. but it's very hard to make a game that is accessible for both those groups and for the middle of the bell curve of people who mainly play Dungeons and Dragons or mainly listen to podcasts. Yeah. yeah, Right. And so the hardest design work of Wanderhome, the thing that I probably spent the most time doing was making sure that folks in that middle area overwhelmingly could get on ramped too. That it wasn't just for people who've never played games before, and it wasn't just for people who have played lots of games, but also that it had space for podcast fans, frankly, and people who mainly, you know, like I think that genuinely the largest group of people invested in tabletop role-playing games right now are podcast fans. And that's mm-hmm. not, you know, that that's a totally fine thing. I think that's great. They're overwhelmingly young, you know, like, young queer people, you know, like young marginalized folks. And it's like, yeah, I want to onboard those people ASAP. That's a community that I'm invested in. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, how do I make a game that onboards them? And the answer is you can't just, you know, you, you got to really think about that and really approach it from like, if all, all I know is a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons, how can this game still make me feel comfortable? So that was probably the hardest design work. I think that a lot of the writing for Wanderhome spilled out almost automatically. Like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, it was just a, it was just a dissociated fugue state. Oh, of I get it. I just, <laughs> I just churned out Wanderhome, and there it was. I think that the hardest parts was... So I, I frequently say that the, the, the skill to start a project and the skill to end a project are completely different skill sets. And Wanderhome was an exercise in ending projects. Yeah. Wanderhome was a was a massive exercise in editing and refining and getting every single word perfect. Mm-hmm. The initial kind of churning out a playable game was very quick and very easy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of that's kind of how Wander Home went. Was that the editing was the hard part, not the writing, which is I think different than a lot of other games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the first time I've heard that question answered that way. I often ask this question to other guests just because I want to showcase that like everyone has their struggles and their designs. Like I think there could be some people that like look at wander home from a Twitter lens or from a Kickstarter success lens Mm -hmm. and not really conceptualize or have a perspective on the time that it took Mm -hmm. for those things to like bolster. Right. Like how, how long was the journey of wander home? Right. You said you started this during quarantine. so that's actually a great one. So like the thing about Wanderhome, right, is the initial text of it, right, happened very quick. Where it was like, I think I was completely done with the text, barring like, you know, I swapped out a nature at one point. I added some extra holidays, but it was basically done in July, mm-hmm. uh, 100% done in July. The next, and it actually, the final draft was sent to the, to the layout artist, to Grubby, in January. Mm-hmm. So that whole five, six-month period was spent editing and there was a lot of editing and wander home i think is an exercise in putting a ton of work into making something that looks like it doesn't take a lot of work like you look at wander home and you're like wow that's very clean that's very it's almost like smooth right like you look at like it feels like there's a lot there right like oh the mechanics are really simple the pick lists are just words, right? You just wrote words, right? It's like, how hard could it have been? It's almost like, it's a little bit like modern art in that way, where it's like, oh, my <laughs> five-year-old cousin could have designed Wander Home. And it's like, well, you don't see that, you know, I write, let's say, for example, I write a pick list, right? I wrote a pick list for, you know, a playbook. Mm-hmm. Then Luke Jordan from Wildwood Games, the, the first editor, they come in and we went through every single pick list in Wanderhome, all 300 plus pick lists. And we took every single one and we refined it. We cut out the bad options, made them better, you know, like challenged every single choice in every single pick list until every single one of them was juicy. Literally we use the phrase like needs more juice all the yeah. time. And then so hey, Luke- that's this podcast hashtag juice nation, baby. Yeah. We, we put juice in every single pick list option. Then Luke left. Then I printed out all the pick lists and I printed them all out onto like a hundred sheets of paper. And I went through every single one and I thought about order and I thought about positioning and I thought about flow where it was like, mm-hmm. does this pick list is the, the options flow from one choice to the next. And I moved those around and I rewrote a few lists and I put that back together. Luke went through, did another pass and then it went to Kazumi. Kazumi was the main editor. And Kazumi went through and edited it all for grammar and language and also for flow and kind of refined things on that level. And so things got even further refined and tightened down. And then that was, you know, kind of pretty much its final form. But then, you know, it goes to Grubby. And, you know, Grubby is the layout person. She has to make edits because sometimes pick lists are too long or too short and she needs a little bit more or a little bit less. So mm-hmm. she's editing the pick lists, Right. And so what you're left with, it looks very concise, but you don't see how many rounds of editing went through that and Mm -hmm. how, like, the gauntlet that we put those pick lists through, where, like, a big chunk of playtesting is seeing how people react to pick lists. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of stuff in pick list design where it's like, what is the, is there an option that people always choose? Is there an option that people never choose? Is there an option that people always go oh that's too obvious i'm not going to choose it 
Are there mm-hmm. options that are overshadowed by other options? Are there options that get lost in other options? How does it all feel at the table? How does it feel when people read it? Do they feel the punchline? Right? Like I always try to make sure my pick lists have punchlines mm-hmm. where you read through like um in the caretaker playbook, there's a list of gods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it starts out fairly standard and then it gets a little weirder and then you get a couple families of gods and then you get the ancient nameless god that is hiding among your other gods. And then you get the buggy friend that has no place among gods. And it's kind of a punchline, right? Like it's kind of building up and it kind of hits this crescendo and it hits a weird, scary thing and a funny thing. And then you're like, oh, you know, like it feels satisfying when you get to the end of it. And that was intentional. That was really intentional and took a lot of work. And every single pick list has stuff like that, where we tried to make sure that every single pick list, when you read it, it's like reading, it's going on a little journey with the pick list where you kind of go through the options and they kind of give you a little emotional arc. So that took a, t- that, that, the editing of that was probably the vast majority of the time spent wander, designing Wander Home. And so when you talk about, you know, when we talk about like, you know, what were the hard parts of designing Wander Home, the answer is overwhelmingly like, it is very easy to write a game like Wander Home. It is very hard to refine that into Wander Home, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I totally agree. The process was hard. I, I totally agree. Is like, Again, like like I've mentioned a couple times here, is people don't really see. I, I think we talked about this off mic a little bit, but people don't see the number of hands that go into a project often, and wow. they don't really have a concept of like the time scale. Uh, you know, we hear horror stories of like super backers and stuff like where's my game why isn't it out yet blah blah need to do and it's like well my i had a family emergency i one of my editors had had an emergency mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. we kind of misscoped how long it would take to edit to give you a perfect product right like what yeah. fits our standards and i think that <laughs> you know the world would be a better place if people understood that this is like this is why novels have years between the next part in the series or whatever, because mm-hmm. it takes a lot of, there's a lot of refinement. It's not perfect on its first writing. Like, no, and there's no such thing as just a second draft. There's like a third draft and a fourth draft. And like, yeah. there could be 10 drafts. Yeah. And I think that the crucial thing, right. is like with any design, right. Like the, the bigger the project is, the larger the scale is. And when you're one mm-hmm. person writing an Ichio game, like when I was one person writing an Ichio game, it's just me, right? And that's totally fine. It's great that it's just me. It's cool that I'm combining these resources. Every once in a while, you know, I like to bring in editors a lot because I'm bad at editing my own work. Mm-hmm. So I always try to have an editor no matter the scale of the project. That was true even, like, before I did Wander Home. But, like... For Wander Home, we wanted to make sure that it was really a very solid thing. We knew it was very strange. We knew it was unconventional. We knew thematically it was doing some very different stuff. And we knew also that it was a very textual project. It was very, mm-hmm. the text needed to hold up as something worth reading. And that's what makes made Wander Home's editing process very different from the editing process for almost any other game, is that we wanted it to feel satisfying to go through Wander Home and read the so yeah and so we ended up with i think we had you know luke as the developmental editor we had kazumi as the general editor we had jami as a playtest as a as a as a playtesting consultant who was very much involved in 
being like looking over the book and being like, what does it need here, here and here to make it easy for people to learn how to play? Because Jami has an incredible amount of experience teaching people how to play games and play testing. Mm. Uh, and then it was like, all right. And then we've got our consultants, right? Where it's like, oh, you know, like I got to credit my roommate because my roommate and I spent a while giving feedback to one of the artists on drawing a wheelchair, the crow wheelchair. That was mm-hmm. an important part of the consultation process. You know, oh, we, you know, we've got, you know, we have, you know, Gian who did some consulting work. We have, you know, Kazumi who did some, you know, consulting work in addition to editing. We have, you know, Adira and Riley who both helped consult on stuff like the holidays, which it was really important to make sure the holidays weren't like just Christian centric. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, and so there's, you know, kind of all this consulting work. And then, you know, that's just the writing and the <laughs> art, which is half of Wanderhome, right? Is the art. That was a huge team as well. And then there's the stretch goals. And so it's like, yeah, when you look at Wanderhome as a final project, you see my name on the cover. But when you flip it open, it is a long list of people involved in the project. Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. didn't even credit playtesters. I, you know, like <laughs> there's a it, it, go, it goes on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's I think that's a really good really good challenge to bring up was the challenge of the refinement process. Do you, do you have now for the opposite end of the spectrum that I like to ask, do you have a favorite piece of design for the book? So I think a lot of people's favorite design for wander home is the veteran. People talk about the veteran a lot and I don't blame them. It's, it's a very cool bit of design. The veteran's seventh move as I call it, which gives it an aura of intensity, but I do think my favorite design for Wanderhome actually isn't that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my favorite design is the seasons. Oh God. Um, yes. And specifically the way, so the, the goal of the seasons was having this, this feeling of change as you move through the world mm-hmm. that kind of correlates with your own character growth, right? Every single holiday between the seasons, you advance, you, you pick an advancement. Um, and eventually that, that eventually as you go through the seasons, you have to replace your character. The, the, there's always one advancement that you must choose because you must choose an advancement you didn't choose before. And mm-hmm. the final one says that your character leaves. You have to pick a new character. And I'm really proud of that because it was really important to me that I create the invitation for long-term play. I think many indie games lack what I kind of call like, you know, the, the, the long-term play fantasy, right? Where it's like, I've got a game that, that gives you this fantasy of playing it for a decade, right? Until all your, you, you and your friends meet up once a month for, you know, 20 years and you've played Wander Home every time and eventually, you know, like it becomes a special thing, right? Like that kind of fantasy of games mm-hmm. is really important to me because there's a small percentage of people who will do it, but there is a larger percentage of people who will become enraptured by the fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really important with Wander Home, almost like in Dungeons and Dragons with 20th level mechanics where it's like, you will not get to this, right? So few people get to this, but that's not the point. The point of them is not for people to get to them. The point of them is for people to dream about getting to them. And Mm. Wanderhome is similar where I really wanted to build stuff with phenomena and advances. That's about that dream, that kind of the feeling that your character can keep going. Because like, I love games like dream askew, Dream Askew does not have that dream. It's not clear what makes the 20th session of Dream Askew meaningfully different than the first. And so the goal, right, is to be like, okay, well, how do I make a game that really pulls you along for ages and ages, you know? Yeah, it 
but even then, like I all me, I I love like the capstone to a game being present in a game. Like I like Band of Blades a lot because the end of it is Sky Dagger Keep. You get there, and the the game is over for now until mm-hmm. whatever is on the Eastern Continent comes out from Strauss and John. But I also like dreaming about the finality of a story. Like mm-hmm. I kind of itch for man. I can't wait to take that it, like that last advance and say well this is my last season that we get to play together with this character, right? Like it's, yeah. it feels a little bit more, it makes everything feel a little bit more monumentous, even if it's still something, even if it's like a simple campfire yeah. season, right? Like yeah. a, not a journey into a uh, ruin, but just like this is the last time we get to like walk around town together before I reach my destination. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it leaves you feeling very, it makes, it makes it like, I think even, from the beginning, it gives a certain weight to your characters, right? Mm-hmm. Because it means your characters in Wanderhome are not static. They feel mm-hmm. dynamic from the start, even if they haven't changed, even if you haven't played with the dynamic mechanics. Mm-hmm. Knowing they're there makes them feel different, and it's very satisfying. And so that work was really, really important, and figuring out how to cultivate that feeling was really important, because it, in the end, the goal is that, like, Wander Home is not a static world. It's not an unchanging world. It's a mm-hmm. world that does change over time. And to cultivate that feeling, you have to hint at the past and hint at the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think that was kind of the biggest challenge of design. And I think the biggest success for me was figuring out how to get the seasons to really accurately capture that. And I feel also the phenomena do a good job of that, where mm-hmm. every single season kind of has a rhythm to it. Mm-hmm. And my personal favorite of those is Gatling where practically every other gateling, right? Like every few gatelings, you skip the season entirely. You just miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that, right, is because it's a short month, and so you miss the month. And it's kind of very distressing. <laughs> right? But it feels very true, right? That it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like, yeah, the, the last few weeks of August, yeah, you mm-hmm. miss that. It slips yeah. by you. And giving that kind of that flexibility with time, where it's like sometimes you skip things. Sometimes you linger on things. Time itself is a little, is a little elastic and it changes as you go through each year means that the perspective of getting to play multiple years of wander home, even if your chance to do that is very unlikely, it's very rare to get to play multiple uh, years of wander home. I don't think anyone has actually experienced a phenomena yet. Literally. I don't think anyone has. We, 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 we play tested where we like super boosted phenomena and they, they worked. <laughs> uh, but like, I don't think anyone has less like quote unquote without cheating achieved a phenomenon. And I think like, I, I think that's a, it's like the promise of it is really exciting. You know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it. I love, I love the promise of the future sort of things. I don't, I don't feel like D and D quite captures that magic. Mm-hmm. I know it's like everyone dreams about level 20, but I become such like, mm, that that's the only like game design snobbery of me is like level 20 just does not work with three magic items and how it wants you to like, like Tiamat is nothing compared to like four level 20 fully decked out PCs flying on magic carpets. Like there's no mm-hmm. if, ands or buts about it. And you have to really tone down that stuff. But I love the concept of experiencing this dynamic change and it's, you know, I'm writing it down on a note card for myself, for my own personal designs, like mm-hmm. hint at the past and hint at the future. Uh, I think those mm-hmm. things are very, yeah. Uh, I think it's very good juice. Mm-hmm. 
What I learned from Dungeons & Dragons, I am very fascinated by people who play Dungeons & Dragons. I do not care much for the books. The books have very little to teach me. Mm -hmm. But the people who play Dungeons & Dragons have a lot to teach me. Mm -hmm. Because the way they play the game is really important. And you can learn a lot from how they play it. And so I I am always very interested and study very intently the ways in which people play Mm D&D. And that has much more to offer me than trying to emulate the books, right? Like, when I talk about, oh, D&D does this level 20 mechanics stuff, and I'm trying to think about that, I'm not really thinking about how the book does it. I'm thinking much more about how uh, people feel about yeah. it. Yeah. What makes people feel. Not only that, but, like, you can look at all the... It, it even hit, like, the emergent design things we've been talking about throughout this thing. It's like, look at the difference between Critical Role and Dimension 20, and then even within Dimension 20, look at the difference between... Uh, a crown of candy and mice and murder, right? Like those, yeah. all those things are such varying levels of the exact same design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's different than what is played, what is in the book. Right. Right. But like, I think a lot about a thing Brennan and I once talked about for, for I keep name dropping Brennan and for context, <laughs> he's an old friend of mine. He taught, he was my summer camp counselor when I was a little kid. So him and I have always been close, like before he became quote unquote famous or whatever. But Brennan and I have talked a lot about what he, he he's described it as like, I am a mechanic, right? Like I know how, like I know how cars work, right? Like I can open up, any car and tell you what's going on inside. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not like necessarily the best at like, you know, driving cars, but you give me a pile of junk and I can build you a car. You know, like I get how they work inside <laughs> and out. I get how every single one of them works. Brennan is a race car driver. He knows one car and it's technically <laughs> a Dungeons and Dragons car, but he's had it for 20 years and he has gone in and souped it out in every single possible way. And it's his baby. And it's Dungeons and Dragons on a technicality. And he's just <laughs> learned it inside and out. And he doesn't know other cars. He doesn't know how it, t- it ticks exactly. He couldn't necessarily take it apart and put it back together again. But he's got his vehicle. And he can drive it very fast. And I feel like that's kind of the, the our, you know, the, kind of what I learned from Dungeons and Dragons. Is that not like, oh wow, this is what Wizards of the Coast has done with the game. But like, oh, wow, this is what people have done with the game. This is what mm-hmm. people have learned from it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't care about Wizards of the Coast. I don't think about them. Yeah. <laughs> I give them no mental space. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. First, my I have never played Dungeons and Dragons the way they want me to. My first game of D&D before I started playing Monster Hearts was uh, a heavily homebrewed version of 4th Edition. That was so awesome. distinct from 4th Edition that it was basically not even the same thing. <laughs> I'm like that's, I just have never played D and D the way I was supposed to, and so like people all the time talk about like oh you know I, I started with Dungeons and Dragons I had to learn to break away from it, and that's I just I just never had that kind of cultural context. Yeah, that people have. Same. I mean, my first game was Dungeons and Dragons, and I loved the friends that I was playing with it, but I always felt like it wasn't doing the things that people wanted at the table. Right? Like one of my yeah. one of my most famous examples is like. Can you light a campfire with the Firebolt cantrip? Who's going to fight you about that, right? Like, Firebolt yeah. cantrip doesn't say it lights things on fire. It just says it does fire damage. Well, then, mm-hmm. intrinsically, it must be made of fire. You know what I mean? And then yeah. that becomes a whole, like, play space to explore, but not by the game standards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think d and I could tell you... I think... <laughs> 
I'm going to tell you one of my favorite things about D&D, and I need you to know it comes from a very critical place. I'm not a, I'm not a huge D&D fan. I'm, listen, I'm not here to yuck anyone's yums. But one of my favorite things Dungeons & Dragons does very well is it has a big, it's very specific in kind of the oddest ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I love its big list of stupid spells that are all very <laughs> weird. I love Mordekainen's Magnificent Mansion. What a spell! Imagine a Powered by the Apocalypse game with Mordekainen's Magnificent Mansion. No one would dare. Imagine masks. <laughs> They're one of the moves in masks among, like, you know, confess your feelings and tick down the doom clock is create Mordekainen's Magnificent Mansion. What a beautiful bit of design that no one else dares to do. That is <laughs> what you can learn from Dungeons & Dragons as a designer, is go to it and find the stuff that's actually very daring, very weird, very idiosyncratic, very folk arty that kind of stuck around with it for 50 years despite all corporate intents. Take that and run with it, because you can do such huh? such interesting things with it if you really, if you really grab a hold of it. I mean, truly, if you, if you recontextualize all the spells to be moves, not like such uh, mechanical weightiness, but just like engagements of narrative, it's like, there's a, they're actually like, it's crazy. It's crazy the implications that you could have there. It's really cool. Kazumi and I have been working on a game for a while that has taken many forms, but for a while it was called Academy at Halfway Station. Mm-hmm. And we made a magic system for it where the idea was the only time you roll 2d6 was when you're casting a spell. Mm-hmm. And the way spells worked was that it would be a snippet of poetry, and then the interpretations of it were Ooh. the various moves. So, for example, a line of poetry that's like, know the name of every cloud. And then there's one interpretation. There's like the, the oh God, it's been like a month since I've looked at the document, like the Bethel Weiss interpretation that's like, you know, oh, this is the proper textbook way. And what you do when you do this is you summon a cloud that you can ride around on. And then there's another interpretation that's like, you know, the Voynich conjecture, where it's like, here's maybe a thing that's, you know, like, or like someone's dissertation. That's like, here's maybe a thing you can do and try rolling this move. And like, the consequences are bad, but the upside is cool. Or like, you know, oh, here's an interpretation that's like a folk interpretation that was practiced by farmers. And like, you can try that out. And so we're like, oh, this interpretation is a heresy. This one was come up with as like, part of like this horrific violence that was committed wow. uh, and like it's a fucked up spell like you shouldn't do it like and like that's really cool to me where it's like oh what if the magic has history what if the magic has specificity i love specificity in games i'm a huge sucker for it but like what if this what if these spells were really specific what if they grabbed you and were like oh what the hell does that mean what does that mean for the world having that in the text yeah we well oh my god wait hold on my mind is exploding like we talk about like chanting a spell, right? It's in this ancient draconic language, right? But does like, does everyone know exactly what those words mean? Like how mm-hmm. that spell is derived, what it's pulling mm-hmm. from, right? Like, yeah, such a fascinating concept of like the the concepts of language and culture mm-hmm. and oral tradition and how like you can get into like these bastardizations of spells, right? Like, or it's like how you mess up turns of phrase, like only knowing the one part and Mm -hmm. not knowing what the, like what it stems from is so, Mm -hmm. so fascinating. Where it came from for me was I'm really into chess. I got really into chess during quarantine. That was kind of my like quarantine Mm -hmm. hobby. And in chess, right? Chess is a very, when you look at it, it's a very uh, mathematical game, right? Like it doesn't, Mm -hmm. pieces don't really, 
you know, it's not like flavorful, right? It's not like you're looking at Magic the Gathering. And you're like, oh, that's yeah. a sick dragon, right? It's okay. That's a, these <laughs> this can be represented very abstractly. Sick dragon. The, the history of the game is communicated with every single move, right? If you and I play out Rui Lopez opening, one of the yeah, yeah, yeah. openings, the Rui Lopez has a history. Rui Lopez was a dude in 16th century Spain who wrote the first book wrote about this opening and analyzed it. And we can play the Rui Lopez and have that history with us as we play it out. So we play out the Archangel variation or the Exchange variation or the Morphe defense developed by Paul Morphe, one of the first American grandmasters who developed the Morphe defense against the Exchange, you know, like against the Exchange variation until he went insane and like left chess. Like, Blah! You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Like it's, it's mergings of of yeah. parallel histories, right? Exactly. Like touching in on mm-hmm. on this event. You're playing. Hold on, wait, wait, my dude. Hold on. <laughs> you're you're like playing out. You're recreating all these narratives and asking, like, you're doing what if uh fucking Marvel versus DC conversations too, right? Like, yeah. what if this opening versus this defense, right? Or like. This yeah. closing of a game. Well, there was, uh, a, there was a classic <laughs> moment I really loved that was in a tournament recently. I got really into competitive chess as well, specifically. There was a tournament recently of Hikaru Nakamura versus Fabiano Caruana and played against each other very recently in, in New Orleans, I think, or in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. St. Louis, yeah. And in it, Hikaru Nakamura played a particular surprise against Fabiano Caruana and destroyed him and won the game. Mm-hmm. And what Hikaru revealed in a post-game interview was that he prepared that opening in 2019 against Fabiano in the Isle of Man tournament. And Fabiano did not play into it. Fabiano played a different opening. And so Hikaru couldn't use that prep. And Hikaru ended up drawing the game. But if he had won that game, if Fabiano had played that opening in 2019 in Isle of Man, like Hikaru had planned, Hikaru would have crushed him then. And he would have gone on to the Candidates Tour and might have been become world champion. That might have been what it took because he didn't become world champion instead became a a Twitch streamer. And so like now you can go back, we can go, we can grab those games and we can compare them, set them up on our own boards. And that's such a cool feeling, right? Where it's like, yes, this is a very analytical game, but it has an incredible level of history layered into it where the position of the pieces, like you can make jokes with chess pieces, right? Like you can do the double bong cloud opening or the fool's Mm -hmm. You can set up these jokes in chess. Like there's one great video of someone playing against a grandmaster and he's like a Twitch streamer jokingly playing against a grandmaster being like, ha ha, yeah, I can totally beat Alexandria Botez. Like watch (laughs) this. And he intentionally plays the fool's mate, which is the fastest way to get checkmated. Mm. Uh, and he loses immediately and it's a very funny clip what's funny about it he holds a joke with chess it's a joke with chess he Uh moves the pieces in such a way that's a joke because of its history because of its implications and like that sort of stuff is really cool and like it all comes from looking at this analytical position and applying our interpretations to it and that's what grabbed me about chess is that chess doesn't necessarily have a lot of teeth but the history of it the the heroes of it the villains of it the it's like it's like wrestling with accountants, you know. <laughs> oh God, it's so good. There's so much. Like in the last ten minutes, just some really crazy stuff has made me really think about like setting design and mm-hmm. content design and how to merge those things with mechanics and yeah. And just I've also recently, like very recently, like with the last last week, I've been watching a lot of like principles of chess stuff, and I just learned about poison ponds the other day, but. 
Either way, God. Yeah. That's You're great. Game design. <laughs> Thank You're you. Great. You're great. You're I, great. I, I like to joke that I'm very min-maxed for game design. That I'm <laughs> really, I can't I can't walk. I can't uh, I can't do most things. Uh, but I can design games incredibly effective efficiently. <laughs> I love it. And I love I love the lean in too. It's so good. I think that's gonna let us segue kind of into more topical stuff. I mean, are there any last notes you want for Wander Home as far yeah. as <laughs> no? I encourage people to buy the game. I feel like buy the game, have your own design thoughts about it, yell at me on Twitter and tell me I'm wrong and that the game is bad. I don't know. Go read it. it Reading it, reading it is going to tell you a lot more about its design than I could. Typing it up now. Jay is bad at Wander Home. Thank you. Thank you. Of yes. Course. Thank you. Thank you. You yes. deserve it. You deserve yeah, it. I do. I do. I do. After, after <laughs> all I've been through. After, yeah, after all my... After, <laughs> can't let girl bosses win forever, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. I want all the winning, all the victory for them. Yeah, uh, this segment of the show before we wrap up for the day Mm -hmm. this is sort of like a quick and dirty tips and tricks or trends or topical conversation with the designer i usually ask things like are there any trends that you're noticing in our Mm -hmm. tabletop role-playing space as far as you know things you're seeing in your social circles discord twitter emails personal messages that mm-hmm. keep blipping up and like wow i really want more people to like get involved with this is there like something yeah. we're seeing in your social circles that it's like ooh i would love if people would sort of like caution against this like pattern of thinking or is there something that's within such, you want to touch now fast question i know you but really, specific- that's there's there's like, I feel like I have every answer and no answer for that. I guess I'll, I'll try to take it uh, piece by piece. First well, well, yeah. you ta- we talked a little bit earlier about, like, ecosystems and your yeah. model for Possum Creek. And I think that stuff would be very valuable for listeners. Yeah, so for sure. I'll, I'll approach this from a business perspective. I want to note to folks, I am in a, a somewhat unique business pr- position in that I am running a, a small business. Uh, it's me and my, my co-founder, Grubby. And we work with a lot of freelancers. There's, you know, it's not, it's, we're a corporation for tax purposes, you know, but like, we're not really structured that way. It's just kind of me and my business partner. This means I'm in a very unique position. And a lot of my advice is, and a lot of my advice and thoughts are going to be coming from that position of someone who does this full time and someone who makes a livable wage doing it full time. That means that if I give advice that is incompatible with your position in the industry, that's totally fine you're going to have a different set of experiences than me. And I just want to kind of caution people on that before I kind of get into thoughts, because I don't want someone to listen to this and be like, damn, I publish zines on itch.io and I can't do this stuff that Jay is talking about. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I couldn't have done this stuff a year ago. Also, like I'm in, I'm in a position, I'm in a somewhat unique position here. So I'm going to try to talk from that position and not, I don't, I don't want people to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm misrepresenting things. Thank you. Yeah. So my, my whole thing is we kind of go for uh, a somewhat centralized model. We we're, we're Possum Creek games is me and Grubby. And right now we make enough money to pay me and Grubby 
a, a livable wage. We make less than we would if we were tech work, if we were like working for Google, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. We, make, we make what is considered middle class for our area. And we make about, we make about that much. And so we can do this full time, which is really exciting, but we're kind of very focused on a lot of our business, very focused on what I've kind of been thinking about as ecosystem cultivating, where it's much less about building up like, ah, we are the business and we do this single service and we provide, you know, we, we publish books and that's what we do. We're, I'm very interested in in ecosystem cultivation is basically what I call it, which is basically this idea that game designers are part of an ecosystem where, so within the aegis of game designer, right? Like if I call myself a game designer, I'm saying I do actually like five or six different jobs where you write the game, you play test the game, you edit the game, you, you know, frequently art direct the game, or even in some cases you do the art or graphic design for the game. You publish the game on itch.io, you market the game online. Those are, that's six different jobs. That's six or seven Mm -hmm. different jobs. Those are all also done by different people. And the goal of an ecosystem is that I want to make a space where instead of it being like, I am a one person workshop doing all of this stuff, or even instead of like, oh, we have our dedicated marketing person, we have our dedicated publishing person, we have a dedicated writer. I want to have an environment where it's like, there's a lot of writers, there's a lot of editors, there's a lot of graphic designers, there's a lot of marketers, there's a lot of, you know, podcast hosts and AP players and social media influencers and customers and all of those things kind of get to mill around in a big stew and a big web of interconnected interests. And they can kind of feed into each other well. It's kind of my long-term dream for Possum Creek, which is why I call it an ecosystem, right? Because it's like I'm I'm cultivating not only like, oh, Possum Creek itself, but also like who are other mm-hmm. creators adjacent to us? Who are people who they can feed into us or we can feed out into, right? Like when we make something, who can that game go to to help them? Who can edit that game? Who can we get involved in that? You know, all of those processes even you know it's kind of our, our discord patreon setup where we're really managing an online community and like putting effort into making sure that it's a, a functional online community because there's a lot of it's very easy to mismanage online communities but we're really kind of putting the work in to make sure it's functional a big part of that is like we're trying to cultivate an ecosystem right where we're trying to build a community that's not just like oh a bunch of fans of jay dragon but like mm-hmm. we're trying to make a space where it's like yeah these are a bunch of people who enjoy games in a lot of different ways and they can all feed into each other and their work can inform each other's work. I, it is a recently, but I think maybe also intrinsic to my soul, something that I've also been thinking about dabbling in trying to put context behind forming, like you said, these ecosystems of people that can help each other design and help each other create and help each other like, be a part of projects and just like kind of beyond the job hunting board sort of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Like be, not just putting up something that says like, Hey, I need an editor, a content mm-hmm. designer, a system designer, but it's like, Hey, I really liked your work in, in this, like, would you want to be a part of this project? Cause I feel like it's very similar or something. Yeah. To that effect. yeah. And having this sort of like collective pod of individuals who can co- sort of like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially, especially for people who are trying to tap into tabletop full time, right? I think yes. that's a because yeah. in my experience so far, I have a lot of connections with people who mm-hmm. are something plus game design, right? Like yeah. uh, someone who has a nine to five job and then sort of mm-hmm. does it as like a background thing, and it can be yeah. hard to get 
like to have that type of individual make their thing and also come on board for your thing. Right? And not, that's not like a, uh, I don't want to make this sound like I'm yucking anyone's yums here for sure, yeah. because that's what you got to do to put, put mm-hmm. bread on the table. And I respect that wholeheartedly, but I would love to create this interconnected web of, and not just designers and people who can help with design, but like you said, mm-hmm. like press and actual play, like just these different circuits of, I was just talking with someone today that I would love to put together an actual play like production of something, but it's so hard with the number of responsibilities I have with the podcast and my own personal designs and having content writing and then also trying to project manage and GM that production yeah. is yeah. is tough to keep all those plates spinning. And I've definitely mm-hmm. had some stuff fall through the cracks. One of the big things I've learned as someone who does this full time is that if there's a job I can't do, I need to find someone who can do it, right? Like mm-hmm. if I realize I can't do this particular task, I need to hire someone who can do that task. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of my responsibility is to make sure that like we bring in the people we need. There is a concept that Avery Alder introduced to me that Avery taught as about being about game design. But I also think it's true about this kind of community building work we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I've thought about it in a lot of different contexts ever since I learned about it, which is it, it comes from decolonial approaches to gardening. And mm-hmm. it's this idea of, and I'm going to butcher this, of course, mm-hmm. but it's this idea that you see, you have a circle and that circle is the house. That is the center of where humans live. That is kind of the, the central core. And then the immediate circle around it is where you put the plants that need the most care, the plants you want to check up on the most, the plants you're going to be going to all the time. Those are the plants that really need care, but they're also the plants that you use in cooking a lot, right? Like you want to put this, you want to put the, like the herbs there so you can like step outside your door and grab some and come back in. You want to put those plants right there. Then the ring outside of those are the plants that maybe don't need as much upkeep that maybe need checking up on like once a day. And the plants beyond that are plants that need less care. And then you get into like, you know, circles of like, you know, kind of the woods or like the, the bushes at the edge of the woods. And you kind of, you know, mm-hmm. have areas you don't need to check up on, or maybe you check up on once a year. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also true for community design and for, you know, environment design, where at, for me, it's like at my core is Possum Creek Games, which mm-hmm. is me and Grubby. And then immediately outside of the core are the people we're going to all the time. That's Dominique, our editor, who we have on Retainer. We're going to, you know, a lot of our co-writers, a lot of the folks we kind of bring in for every single project where we're emailing at least once a month. Those folks are really close. And then you've got the folks that, you kind of rope in, you know, maybe like, you know, for, you know, you know, this project is going to need this person, you're going to rope them in, you know, and then even further than that, you've got people who maybe you tap in for projects like, oh, we need an accessibility consultant on this particular thing. Mm-hmm. It's a new question we haven't dealt with before. Let's get this person in to get, take, an, take a look at it. Or like, oh, you know, we need to print something. Let's go to that. And then you kind of, you continue to build these kind of concentric rings mm-hmm. of how frequently do you pull people into projects and like each project kind of has its own ring, right? And mm-hmm. then sort of through that, you kind of build this web of ecosystem where it's like there are people at kind of the edges where it's like I might tap them in for a particular project. I might, you know, kind of poke them once in a while. I might bounce ideas off of them. But there's also the folks who are really core and central to the whole ordeal, even if they're not like, you know. And like the kind of goal is to make that as expansive of a ring of circles as possible so that when someone else comes in, they can position themselves among those rings where it's best. And like they can, mm-hmm. they can build their own rings and we can have kind of these interlocking rings is kind of the ideal. 
I love it. I think it's it's so. I mean, I vibe with with that exactly. I imagine it's sort of like a backwards, like the ring, like the touch point shrinks as you start going outside of the rings, right? So, like if your project is a month long, you might have the consultant only be there for like two or three days over the course of the project, right? Whereas yeah, like your yeah, core absolutely. group is there for the whole month. Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking like I'm I've been at the point where I'm thinking kind of like as a as a meta project. Like mm-hmm. we're doing as as you saw from the press email I sent you mm-hmm. last night. We're doing a lot of projects, and they're all kind of in various stages. And my goal, my function, my main advantage has always been that I'm very good at big picture stuff. That comes up a lot in my game design, mm-hmm. but it also comes up a lot as a project manager. Where mm-hmm. I'm really good at big picture stuff, I'm really good at delegating, and I'm really good at juggling a lot of balls all at once. Mm-hmm. And so my goal is very much like I can't think of Possum Creek as like, oh, we're producing Yuzaba's bed and breakfast. It's like, yes, we're producing Yuzaba's bed and breakfast, which is our next big project. We're also mm-hmm. producing Grand Guignol. We're also producing Our Haunt. We're also producing Venture and Dungeon and Wickedness. And even once those projects are out the door, that's not the end of the project, right? Like the reason I'm here right now, it's like, yes, we're done with Wanderhome, quote unquote. It's been, it's shipping out. It's out the door. But we're not done with Wanderhome. I'm here right now. I have to market Wanderhome. The project's mm-hmm. not done. You know, and like this is just as much an important part of my role as a project manager as every single other step of the way. And that's mm-hmm. true for all the projects we do is that like as project manager, my goal is to make sure the project, you know, there's a there's a beautiful idea by a writer and maybe the writer is me or maybe it's someone else. We take that beautiful idea. We find kind of the best way to articulate it into the world. We work with the writer. We work with a team to develop that articulation we figure out you know what art is going to be best for communicating the themes of this project what are kind of the core emotional beats of the project and then how do we get it out there and then once it's out there how do we help people find it and that's kind of you know that's that's my job my job as a project manager but it's also kind of you know that's what it means to look at possum creek in kind of a meta way you know Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I totally get it. I and like I said it's something that I'm constantly thinking about when it comes to Honestly, like what it really boils down to for me as, as I process what you're saying is like, I, I just want to create, I, I'm just such like a connector. I've always been a connector in my life. Yeah. And like, Hey, yeah. have you met, you know, just the other day, an old acquaintance of mine was like, yeah, I sort of like fell out of the restaurant industry. I moved into carpentry. Cool. Mm-hmm. I know this really cool guy that's literally just starting up a real estate company and needs like extra hands. So like, yeah. let me just see if you two can, can mesh together. Yeah. And like, I'm not upset if, if, if like, what am I, what do I want to say? I am upset. Like if a bridge is burned, but I'm also not at the same end. Like if that mm-hmm. does, if that relationship doesn't work out, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a no skin off my bones. I was just like the connection piece. Right. And I wanted to present the, I, an opportunity creator that's like yeah, uh, that's yeah, the absolutely. big thing right for for us we very frequently like we have a spreadsheet of about 200 artists i think maybe close to 300 now that grubby maintains Fuck that's yeah. a spreadsheet of every single artist we want to work with that we found and whenever we start a new project we go through the spreadsheet and we find the artists that hit on the stuff we want to do you know grubby will send me and like i frequently grubby doesn't read the games that closely so i frequently will read the game closely and have like a more intuitive understanding of the game mm-hmm. and so grubby will send me an artist and i'll be like no this artist is too picture book this artist is too realistic this mm-hmm. artist is too abstract whatever it is we need an artist that's more of this and we, you know grubby then sends me a different artist i'm like this is closer and then we get closer and closer until we find the artists that we want to reach out to and contact 
I love that. I love that so mm-hmm. much. And honestly, like, it's both a combination of like the analytical business mind, like you said, big picture mm-hmm. stuff, right? Yeah. And then you have a team member that sort of like handles the micro, like, okay, mm-hmm. I see your big ideas. Let me see if I can articulate those things with like, a tangible force, Mm -hmm. right? Whether that be artists you select, whether that be like, oh, this is a person who makes really cool dice. Maybe do a special Mm -hmm. dice set or, you know, what I, you know, I know you do a sort of non dice systems primarily, but (laughs) But still, still that's, that's very true. You know, cool tokens, right? Like, like even with, with Wander Home, it was like, oh, we can work with Heart of the Deernicorn. It was a chance to get to work with Heart of the Deernicorn, which is really wonderful to make merchandise. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff like that. I think also a thing that's really underrated is like, I am a publisher, right? Which means that I work with a lot of authors and we're mm-hmm. kind of expanding our, 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 our author circles, right? Like right now it's kind of me and the people who make games like me, <laughs> not like me, you know, but like, like people who make games that, that thematically overlap with the sort of stuff we're already doing, right? Where it's like, oh, you yeah. know, Zami, oh, Luke, you know, even like Kazumi. It's like, yeah, these people are people I'm already in close contact with. We design EM, you know, these are, these are people we design games with closely already. Let's, um, Let's work with them. And we're kind of looking to expand that out into other creators as well. But like an important part of that is like my job as the publisher. And I think every single game has a publisher. It's just oftentimes the publisher is the same as the writer. My job as the publisher, right, is you send me a game, right? You send me, you know, let's imagine you you sent me Our Haunt, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to read Our Haunt uh, and I'm going to go through it. And I'm gonna be like, what are the thematic? What what I have to like basically do an analysis of it, like do an art analysis of it. Where I'm like, what are the thematic touchstones of the game? What are the themes of the game? And like that might be distinct from how it's originally presented. Like if you look mm-hmm. at the first edition of Our Haunt, it's very creepy, it's very eerie. The artwork is very intense and scary, and the reason for that is because those are the resources Jami had access to at the time. And so reading Our Haunt, you know, as as me, you know, being like, okay, well, what, how do we want to approach this? I'm like, hey, the themes of this are very different than the art of this. Let's find an artist who can capture both sides of that. Let's find an artist who can do both. And being able to articulate that and like Jami being like, yes, that's a really important part of the game that got lost in its first publishing. And finding that theme and bringing it forward and knowing to emphasize it, right, is the skill of the publisher, is the skill of the project manager. And so the artist we found, Habil, has done an incredible job. And a lot of the work he's done is really amazing because it's so thematically resonant with Jami's own experiences. My favorite thing is there is a one of the playbook illustrations is of the betrayed, who is a ghost that died a horrible death. Mm-hmm. And Bill drew the ghost, drew her with a plastic bag around her head. That's kind of her ghost sign, which, mm-hmm. you know, is a, is a sign that she was uh, suffocated to death. And mm-hmm. Jami loved that. And we talked about it for a while because it's such a specifically East Asian fear of death. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing that shows up in American culture at all. It's a thing that is, is very, but it's very common in, you know, in the Philippines and in a lot of other places of Interesting. the suffocation of my back. And so it's a very Southeast Asian detail that was very emergent because we found the right artist. We built the right team. We knew what we wanted to go for. We knew kind of the themes of the game and we were able to work alongside the author to articulate that. And, you know, if I was a clueless American publisher who just grabbed, you know, I am a clueless American publisher, but you know, if I, <laughs> if I was one that wasn't working with the author and I just grabbed, you know, Oh, the first artist who can do creepy things, you know, Oh, it's a creepy game. Let's get some creepy stuff in there. I'd be a bad publisher because I'd lose out on all those really important themes. Not only that, but like, 
like losing out the themes also means changing the game, right? Yeah. As we talked about with Wander Home, it's like mm-hmm. the game would be different if there was a, a different style to it, right? It yeah. might send a different implication during the onboarding process. Mm-hmm. So like when you're mm-hmm. in that position to bolster or market a mm-hmm. piece of content or product and you kind of pull your first snap judgment trigger on that, it could go, it could be harmful in yeah. a way that like you're not really thinking about in terms of mm-hmm. both the author's representation of the piece but also yeah. the way it's going to be received by the public i think it's vitally important that like authors of color work with artists of color if you're gonna have like if you're a publisher and you're working with an author of color you need artists of color there too because mm-hmm. the art is so vital for communicating the themes and that you're going to really lose something if the, if the, if without that kind of shared cultural identity. And like, similarly, I think for queerness, you really want queer artists working with queer authors. You want this kind of overlap in themes. I think a great, a great example, not even sort of on this kind of, you know, like I feel like the, the our haunt example is a little extreme. If we go to a sort of, more 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 relaxed example bed and breakfast is our next big project and it's a found family slice of life legacy game that's designed to be played over many small one shots it's a very fascinating weird big sprawling game that i'm really excited for but one of the things about it is we we the first instinct for what is the art like for this game we thought about a very cal arts style you know steven universe-esque mm-hmm. she-raw-esque that kind of style that i think would when people see it, yeah, they'd get the themes of Yuzabas pretty quickly. They'd understand, yeah, this is a, this is a sweet game. This is like a, you know, quote unquote, I hate the phrase wholesome, but I guess if I must, you know, like it is, it is, it's, it's slice of life. It's, it's sweet. It's, it's charming. It's, it's a bit, it's a bit kids like, but I was like, no, the CalArt style does not accurately communicate the themes of the game because when you pick up the game, you will probably imagine it in a CalArts way. You'll probably have that language in the back of your head, mm-hmm. that modern cartoon style when you're visualizing playing the game. But I don't want the game to do that to you. I actually don't want the game to put you in that spot. And I think that a publisher might just leap for that because it's an easy marketing approach. Mm-hmm. But we don't want that framing. We want the book to feel like... The example we used was like, we want the book to feel like a book for kids who are too smart for children's books. You know what I mean? Nice, like yeah. we want it and we want it to feel approachable for everyone of all ages. We want to feel nostalgic for everyone of all ages. And so the trick for, you know, if you're going to make something nostalgic, you need to articulate a nostalgia that no one else has yet. And so we really went for this kind of, you know, the, the book is going to be full of this black and white line work um, these very beautiful, very, you know, figurative illustrations that kind of really, are reminiscent of like mysterious Benedict society or like series of unfortunate events. Like those, those mm-hmm. the illustrations there and the cover, Love. the cover is actually by someone who specializes in gore art, but we really, we, we haven't nailed down this person yet, but we have someone who's got this very explosive, colorful style. That's like really like people, you know, like exploding in these dreamscapes. And we want her to do the cover because it's very, it's very, it's a very different palette than Wander Home. And she also can really capture the intersection of dynamicism and detail that we want for the cover. And we actually have a lot of faith in this being a really interesting cover. And so we're making something that maybe doesn't line up with your first expectations, mm-hmm. but the goal is to just be very catching and very fascinating and mm-hmm. pull you in so it can, and, and you can kind of find what you need in there. We want something that feels nostalgic no matter how old you are, you know? What a 
What a head on your shoulders, truly. <laughs> Again, this is what I do. <laughs> other, people, other people work tech jobs and do game design on the side. I do game design, and that's all I do. So I got to think about it a lot. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it so much. I'm gonna I'm gonna let that resonate with with people there. I think that's where we're gonna wrap up the show here, Jay. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here yeah, and talking so and teaching people and teaching me. Really quick, would you just do another outro of yourself? It, you know, for people to get in touch with you, to remind them where they can find you and and mm-hmm. get all of your things, all these links that Jay will provide will be down below in the show notes for your access. Mm. You can find me on Twitter. I'm the only Jay Dragon. You can check out our website, possiblegreatgames.com, connect to our Twitter or Instagram. You can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash possumcreek. And while you're there, you can join our Discord server, which is really a booming place. I mentioned it a couple times at the call. I've really... It's a really, I'm really proud of it as an environment. We need a special name for it, I think, but mm-hmm. I love it because it's really like a, a special community where a lot of really cool design stuff happens. We do a lot of playtesting. We're actually uh, knee deep in Yazeba's bed and breakfast playtesting right now. Uh, I believe, you know, we're in stage, we're, we're doing uh, playtesting where, you know, we're, we're handing out copies of the game to folks. That's going to be happening very soon. So if you want to get in on that, please join the, the Discord server and I can hook you up. It's a really great space. It's a really great opportunity. I'm, I, I encourage you to check it out. Follow me on Twitter. Come hang out. Say hi. 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 Hi there. Hi. <laughs> hello. Hi. 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 Hello. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Excellent. Perfect. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure having Jay on. And I hope you learned a lot because I certainly did. And we will see you, let you listen to us next time. Say bye bye to the people, Jay. Yeah, take care. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. All right. That's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Jay and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Jay or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.